I'm going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. You may recall this pastor to a Jewish Christian uh, audience who is in a time of trial, time of opposition, and he is uh, encouraging them, he's warning them, he's encouraging them to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has some, some warnings mixed in with his uh, instruction uh, on the superiority of Jesus as the eternal and exalted Son of God, uh, the Son who is a great high priest and Savior uh, of his people. And so we learn more about the priestly role of Jesus in Hebrews than we do anywhere else uh, in the Scriptures. Uh, he is the only priest qualified and appointed by God to mediate his new covenant. And so this preacher is continuing his message on the unique ministry of Jesus. And we'll pick up here in 8 verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them, out of the hand, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach, excuse me, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's holy and enduring word. Would you pray with me? Father, we come boldly and confidently. We come humbly and trembling before your word. Lord, we are in awe of you. That the creator of everyone and everything, the one who is sovereign over all, would make your heart known to us through your word in a way that we can understand and comprehend. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would draw near to us now in helping us to interpret and apply this word. We can do no such thing in and of ourselves. 
So we pray, Lord, that your word would be handled rightly, that it would be proclaimed faithfully, uh, that we would be built up uh, as the body of Christ, as a holy temple unto you uh, through this word that you've given. We thank you for a new and better covenant and the mediator of that covenant in whose name we pray. Amen. SIPA. I wonder if you ever heard of SIPA. Congenital insensitivity to pain. Um, it's a rare disease. It's a hereditary uh, disease. Maybe you wish you had this sometimes uh, because you would not feel any pain. You stub your toe. You fall off your bike. Scrape your knee. You wouldn't, you wouldn't really know it. Um, it sounds kind of nice, but probably not for long um, because without that ability to feel pain, uh, you could injure yourself. And those who do have this rare disease can injure themselves and the injury uh, just festers and gets worse and worse because they can't, um, they can't feel the pain. Um, and so we, we really need those functioning nerve endings and the the pathways uh, to the brain to, to ultimately sound the alarm for our bodies. Um, that this pain is actually a mercy to us as God gives us the ability to, to feel that pain. In the Old Testament, specifically through the words of the prophet Jeremiah, there is an alarm that's being sounded. Um, the people have, have turned from the Lord. They've gone after other gods. They've rejected their heavenly husband. He is faithful. They have been unfaithful. And so the prophet is uh, telling them that they're, they're going to go into exile. They'll be handed over to their enemies and suffer. There's going to be pain. This is going to hurt. They may, they may even wonder if the Lord has abandoned them. It's going to hurt so much. Do you ever think that in your pain? When it hurts so bad that you, you wonder if God is looking in the other direction or if he is left altogether just to endure this type of, of misery um, may very well be what the audience of Hebrews is thinking at this point. This is, this is not what we signed up for. This is painful. Where is God? What is he doing? And that's where we tend to go in our minds and in our hearts when we're in pain when the alarm bells are sounding. Um, talked about this in Sunday school a little bit this morning. When, when hope seems to, to vanish, and we linger in that place of discouragement and despair. Um, but for the people of God, for uh, children of the Heavenly Father, there is mercy in the pain. The exile is not going to last forever. The people will return to the land of promise. God has not rejected them in these times of suffering. In fact, quite the opposite is true. He uses the pain. He sounds the alarm to get our attention that we might turn to Him. So those who are, who are first hearing this message may, may be in that throes of discouragement and despair, looking for a hope that they can stand on. Something that's sure and steadfast. You may find yourself in that place this morning. What can I stand on that is sure and steady? Where do I look for hope? And what this pastor is communicating in this portion of his sermon 
uh, is that hope is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in our changing circumstances. Hope is not found in our abilities. Hope isn't actually found in the uh, practices of, of the old covenant. We need something different. We need something better uh, which to hope in. And so I, I think when we read a passage like this, we can often wonder if God has made a mistake just by reading this language. Did God really know what he was doing um, through all of this Levitical priesthood and all of the, the sacrificial uh, system that we read about in the Old Testament? You know, if that was full of weakness, why did he bother to do that? Um, and what we're told is that God has graciously given his people a copy, a shadow of what is true and what he has always intended to be and to bring about. The people could not keep the old covenant. They willingly broke this covenant with their disobedience. And so God provides a better covenant and a priest to mediate this covenant that cannot be broken. It's a covenant that gives hope because it's a hope fixed on Jesus, on his superiority on the superiority of the new covenant itself. That's, that's the focus of chapter 8 before looking at the new covenant offering uh, in chapters 9 and 10. So we have a couple of comparisons here. Uh, first, the ministry of Jesus as priest compared to the Levitical priest. There's some overlap um, with last week's uh, message in chapter 7. Um, ministry of Jesus is better. And then we have a better covenant mediated by Jesus as compared to the old covenant. So the ministry of Jesus as priest and mediator of this new covenant. Um, now there are some preachers who like to use a lot of words to say what could be said in few words. Um, I've heard they're out there. I don't know of any of them. Maybe you do. Um, but the preacher continues his sermon by saying, here's the point, here's what, I, here's what I'm intending to say. Now, the difference between Hebrews and a long-winded preacher is that this is the Holy Spirit-inspired number of words uh, that we need to hear. We need to hear of our heavenly high priest um, appointed by the Father to minister in this heavenly tabernacle. And there's an allusion here to Psalm 110 uh, where Jesus is seated Right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, the majesty in heaven. Isn't that beautiful, transcendent language to describe uh, our God? He sits as king. He's ruling over creation. Now, last week, we said as, as high priest, Jesus is standing and interceding, interceding in your every moment, in my every moment of need. So which is it? Is Jesus standing or sitting? The answer is yes. His sacrifice as priest, is complete. There's nothing left for him to do to secure our salvation. And so that's the picture of sitting. It's finished. But he continues to intercede. Um, interceding for all those that he came to save in the heavenly tabernacle. Uh, but this place of rule, sitting at the right hand of the majesty, I don't want to jump off of that too, uh, too quickly. Important picture here for us. As the leader goes, so go the people, right? As the king goes, so go the people. Um, the king was supposed to rule in obedience to God. He was supposed to set the example for the people. And here's how we love the Lord. Here's how we serve him and serve each other. 
So you can imagine in the Old Testament when you have a succession of kings like this, uh, maybe a little apprehension, a little fear. Is this king going to be faithful? Is this king going to be obedient to the Lord? Is he going to steer us in the right direction? Um, Is this going to be helpful leadership? Um, And unfortunately, uh, I think in in our own time, in our own experience, we're sort of getting used to leaders letting us down. Um, Not looking to them as real great examples. Um, Because the character of the leader, the character of the king, has consequences uh, for the kingdom. But now now look at our king. Look at our leader here in verse 1. It's not, it's not the main point of the message, but we have a king and priest who reigns forever. He reigns in righteousness and justice and mercy. Jesus is the leader that, that you and I want, the leader that we need, a leader that we can trust. Um, he ministers as high priest in the heavenly tabernacle. He has a sacrifice to offer, it says in verse 3, but that offering is not elaborated on in this chapter. That's coming uh, in the next section. The focus here is where this ministry takes place. Where the priests serve. The Levitical priests would would serve in the tabernacle, in the temple. In uh, Exodus 25, Moses is given that blueprint, a pattern of what this tabernacle uh, would look like. If you have a big, thick study Bible, you may even have a picture of what that uh, tabernacle uh, may have looked like, built from these instructions given to the people. It's an earthly representation of the heavenly reality, which is not as easy for us to to comprehend or to really picture. Um, I don't think we're to conclude that there is a physical structure in heaven that looks pretty much like the picture you have in your study Bible. Um, I heard several years ago, maybe one of you can verify after the service if this is true, but uh, the Capitol building here in Little Rock I've heard that in some movies they've they've used this building because of how closely it represents the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Maybe you can confirm that. But a a representation, a close representation. Um, um, But I I think the pattern we find here operates a little bit differently in the Scriptures. Uh, The Levites served in an earthly temporal representation of a heavenly and eternal reality. That's the comparison. We see the Old Testament patterned, it's completed and fulfilled in the heavenly tabernacle where Jesus serves. So his ministry is better. It's superior because of where that ministry takes place. His priesthood endures stands on the the better and gracious promises of God in a heavenly tabernacle. Um, I just think for for all those things, when when thinking about this comparison, uh, those things that we love, uh, all the the people that we know and love and delight in, all those things that, that give us hope in times of discouragement and despair, we want the reality more than we want a representation, right? More than a copy of this. You know, I love looking at pictures of my, my wife and kids, but it's much better to be in the same room where I can talk to them, where I can hold them. Um, Jesus is the reality, not the copy. 
not a copy of what he's intended to represent. So we see Jesus with eyes of faith, and we need to fix that faith upon him. Fix your love and your hope in him and not some temporal representation of him or his ministry. In some streams of the church, Historically, still, still true today, there are physical relics and certain uh, religious practices um, that are, are held in very high regard to the point where they are almost worshipped or venerated. You know, maybe a, a crown of thorns or a, a spearhead or a grail or a tunic or um, a certain posture in prayer and specific language that goes, goes with that. And we, we understand why this is, because well, we're physical beings and we have physical senses, and so we see the, the importance of this. God has accommodated our physical senses with things in His church, like the sacraments, the table, the water of baptism, things that we can see and touch and taste, physical things that um, mediate the spiritual benefits but we don't worship these things. We don't worship the sacraments. We don't fix our, our love and our hope on the temporal things. We fix our hope on Christ. We look to Christ. He's the, the reality and the object of our faith. And sometimes in a world of I've got to see it to believe it, that can be hard or in a contemporary church that says, I've got to feel it to believe it, that can be especially hard. Um, fixing our, our hope on the reality of Christ. The superior ministry of Jesus is closely connected to his role here as mediator of a new covenant. God would not have announced the need for a new covenant if the old one was working. But the old system, we read, is faulty. And it's faulty because it showed the fault of God's chosen people. Not a no-fault divorce uh, in this case, as, as we know is a tragedy of our time and legal uh, in this land. Um, breaks the heart of God, as all divorce does, even when it may be uh, necessary. You know, but if a spouse so abuses or abandons the other. Um, it may, may force a separation. The covenant promise has been broken. Um, this is what happened between God and His people. He was a, a faithful husband, loving them, and they cheated on Him. They were unfaithful. They gave their love to other gods. Jeremiah 31, which is quoted here in Hebrews 8, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You want to spend some time in Ezekiel 16 for more of that language of God as a husband to his bride, to his chosen people. But God's people divorced him he didn't want this. They did. And so he recognizes it. We hear in Jeremiah 30, or excuse me, Jeremiah 3. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. 
Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. And a few verses later, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. This is what we do in our sin. We cheat on our God, slap his hand of love away from us. Um, now who is going to, when, when that happens, who's going to restore a relationship like that? Who's going to mend this marriage? Who even has the ability to bring these covenant partners back together when there has been this divorce? Certainly not me. It's certainly not you. Not any of God's chosen people. We have shown our inability to keep this covenant. To have no other gods before Him. God and God alone is capable of doing this. He must. He must act and do something new if this marriage is to be restored. So God Himself will fulfill the intent of the original covenant at Sinai. That's what He does. Verses 8-12, through 12, it's, it's the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament uh, from Jeremiah 31. God's redemptive plan must be accomplished through this new covenant. Uh, and if there's a new covenant, then there must be a new mediator of this covenant. The perfect obedience of Jesus, His sacrificial death, is what ushers in a new covenant promised by God through the prophet. Now the word new, it can be a bit uh, misleading. We're talking about the new covenant. Um, if, you, uh, if you're going to build a new house, that means that you probably have an open slab of, of land and there's no house that exists there to begin with, so you're building something new. Not really the sense that we have here. Uh, the sense here is more of um, you've just taken a nice warm shower or bath or a massage or something, you say, I feel like a new man or a new woman. Um, you're feeling refreshed. Uh, there's been a change for the better in your life. That's the sense we're talking about, the new covenant. Um, not starting from scratch, but it's related to what came before. The old covenant was passing away. It's lost its usefulness and has given way to the new. Um, so what's new about the new covenant? We read in verse 8, the Lord establishes a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. So all of His chosen people. Uh, the reach of this covenant uh, is better. The reach of this covenant is, is new, much more, um, much more exhaustive. Um, we read here the, from the revelation given to John. It says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So this covenant now has a global reach. People from all nations will return to the Lord, will return to worship Him. And in that reach, it also extends beyond just a promised land there in the property of Israel, but it extends to all creation. The perfection of Jesus, His sacrifice, He's the first fruits of all those who have been made alive. So all things are restored through His ministry. The promised land of the old gives way to an eternal inheritance under the new covenant. So this covenant is new in its reach. It's also new in its power. Its reach and its power. Appreciate how one commentator states this. 
It says the old covenant did not convey to the people the inward power needed to fulfill its demands. It's in this respect that the new covenant is better. It works internally. It transforms those who come to God through it. So instead of a law which works from the outside, now God will work from the inside. He will do for His people what they could never do for themselves. The very people who cheated on Him, rejected Him, He's going to change from the inside out and give them the ability to keep this covenant. He'll do this by giving of His Spirit. That ability to say, I do in this marriage that has now been restored. He says, I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Under the old covenant, that law is written on tablets of stone given through Moses. Now the law would be written on the heart by the Holy Spirit. So God is working a moral transformation in His bride. So we have a power like this. Marriage vows can be renewed. And God does this right here in verse 10. And I will be their God. You hear what he's saying? So what he's saying to his bride. I do. I belong to you. And how will they respond? By the Holy Spirit in them, and they shall be my people. So the bride will say, yes, we belong to you. And those vows will be kept without fail. Because it is God himself, the exalted and eternal Son of God and High Priest, who keeps them. And so when the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So it's through faith in Jesus, bound to Christ, that the new covenant is kept. So it's new in reach, it's new in its power. And nowhere is that power more on display than what we see here in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. There is not a single sacrifice in the Old Testament system that can ultimately forgive sins. Put all those, I mean, thousands, millions of sacrifices over those years, put them all together and they could not forgive sin. God has made a, a concession Every sacrifice is provisional. It was made on credit until the full debt for sin could be paid. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul says, at just the right time, God sent His Son, born of the woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law. So the new covenant will be established by the Son who pays the bill for your sin, for mine. Sins of yesterday, the sins of today, the sins of tomorrow. They've been paid for, covered by the shed blood of Jesus. And when he introduced a new covenant meal that we celebrate on a regular basis, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. That, that's a very powerful and better covenant that can pay the debt for sin. See, how does God not remember our sins? 
He's omniscient. He knows all that comes to pass. He doesn't forget things. But the translation of this word means that he does not think upon or call to mind our sin. He never brings it up. He never holds it against us. How can he do this? Because the sacrifice has been made and the debt has been paid. Or to say that in fewer words, his forgetting is based on his forgiving. His forgetting is based on his forgiving. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, says the psalmist. So it's important for us to remember that the new covenant is a continuation of God's grace. Grace didn't start with the coming of Jesus. Grace didn't start with uh, the new covenant. Um, could anything be more gracious than God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? Uh, God's grace abounds to his people from creation, but now that grace is, is broadened and expanded under the new covenant. A saving grace. Now it, now it extends to you and to me, Jews and Gentiles. That's us, by the way. Now we can draw near to God because of the high priest who ministers in that heavenly tabernacle. This would be a great assurance. Again, I'm thinking of those who are listening to this message for the first time. Very likely that early Christians would have been denied access to the, the temple area which they could make sacrifice. Imagine how hard that would have been for them. I mean, here's the place to represent God's presence where they can go and be made right with Him and worship Him and to be banned from that place. But the author of Hebrews says, no, that the true priest and your tabernacle, it's in heaven. You're not, you're not missing anything. You actually have access to the majesty in heaven because that's where your living priest is. That's a great assurance for us as well. New Covenant promises that God will change the heart, that He will ensure that this marriage uh, vow is kept. He gives us the ability to turn to Him, a desire to obey Him. Let's give praise to God, church family, that you're sitting here with some desire after God, with some inkling to, to worship Him. That's His gift to you. In case you haven't noticed, that's not a big trend. Give praise to God for His, for His sovereign mercy and working faith in your heart, in your mind. And that's what a saving faith must be. It must be in the heart and in the mind. We learn that you know, through God's Word that, that our hands and feet validate and prove uh, this faith. Show me your faith by... Or without works, I'll show you my, my faith by my works, James says. The works don't save. The works prove that the saving has been done. But genuine saving faith will change the heart, will change the mind, it will change our affections as the Spirit illumines and applies God's Word to us. You know, there are many who profess Christ, and I'll just say that, that they're all heart. They're riding the waves of, of emotion with little interest in knowing the God of the Bible. If they're not feeling it, then their, their faith is weak. They start moving away. And so it just has to be one uh, God thing to the next. Um, I hear that language a little bit 
And uh, I, I, I think I know what it means, right? There are times when God's providence is so overwhelming, uh, so clear that we just can't help but conclude that this is God's hand. He is in this situation. He is upon this person. And that's, that's a good thing. I think it's intended to, to move us in worship, to give praise and glory to Him. And many of you have had these experiences. You've, you've shared these experiences. And I don't want to, to minimize the intensity of those experiences and the emotions that they produce. We are emotional beings, right? I think so. Yeah, well, we'll keep testing that. Um, but for the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, followers and children of God, what is not a God thing? Um, what is God not a part of? Or not ruling over and using for His glory? You say, come on, Brad, you know what we mean when we say that. And I, and I do, I do know what you mean. But what if the God things, God things, are meant to grab our attention and, and shift our gaze to all the other God things that maybe we've overlooked or care not to gaze on and give Him thanks for? So to be saved under the new covenant is to be saved in heart and in mind. Now, sometimes it's all mind. It's all in the head and what it is we claim to know about God and about the faith. It never actually works its way into the heart and changes our, our loves and changes our affections. That's not a saving faith. It must be heart and mind and hands that bear witness to what it is we believe. And that belief, that hope is in Jesus. New covenant is better because Jesus is better. His priestly ministry actually forgives. It, it saves and seals us as God's beloved bride. It does this forever. Brothers and sisters, soon our God, our heavenly husband, will return for the very ones that he has made his own. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He says, I do. Forever. And we can say, I do. Through the ministry of Jesus. Let's pray.